Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Patricia Sanjin Tells Her Own Story by Patricia Sanjin with mission of Ten of Those Publishing Company. We are reading Chapter 26, Home on the Estates. Much has happened during the last few years. They have been some of the richest, most fulfilled years of my life, but one cannot easily write about the present. Those involved are very much alive and close at hand. With such a host of living friends in the church and in the neighborhood, whom does one mention and whom does one leave out? Hazel and I love living in Canley and find our council home in a small garden a great joy. One of the best things about our home is that we are only five minutes' walks from the Canley Evangelical Church, where I have worshipped for the last 15 years. It is a church which has more and more seen itself as serving the community, as well as faithfully sharing God's Word. The building was enlarged in 1984, and almost every day there are activities for different age groups, including daycare facilities for the elderly. At a ladies' hour on Wednesday afternoon, well over a hundred, some widowed or lonely, find a warm welcome, and many are visited in their homes. We gain a lot, too, through our weekly house groups in different homes where we study God's Word in an informal setting and pray for each other's individuals and families. It is such a blessing to share in the outreach of the church in these different ways, as well as in the young people's work, and to be able to introduce with confidence new folk to this loving and welcoming fellowship. Since 1990, numbers have so increased at the Sunday morning family service that the possibility of having two services is now being discussed. It is so good, too, that we can work and pray in warm fellowship with our neighbors at the Anglican Church nearby and have a joint Saturday evening service with them every month. We are fortunate in having a lot of guests in our homes, some from near at hand, others from different parts of the world. Being near Warwick University, we get to know students, especially some from overseas, and a number of them also come to the church. Since 1984, we have had lodgers, the first a social worker, Helen Chuck, who overlapped for six weeks with John White, an MSE student. They fell in love almost at once and are now married and missionaries in Lebanon. Then we had two years of Bangladesh Ph.D. student, followed by a succession of Chinese postgraduate students, mostly for a year each, a new man always ready to come in the day after the last one leaves. All of them have become good friends, adding much pleasure to our lives. We enjoy, too, the young people and children from the estate who often drop in. My first guests were a group of seven or eight lads aged between 15 and 18 whom I met soon after arriving in Canley. They were sitting on the steps of the fish and ship shop one Sunday evening when I was passing by on my way to church. They hailed me, singing the Queen Mother's song, Grandma, we love you, and I replied, and I love you. May we visit you, they asked. Yes, I said, at eight o'clock after church. On my return, rather to my surprise, the whole group were waiting on my doorstep. I was alone with my aunt then and had to go upstairs to see her. So I welcomed them in, showed them where to make tea, and said I would be down soon. Each week for several months they came, until for various reasons they scattered, and never once were they any trouble. If I was delayed upstairs, they would call up, Miss, Miss, we're waiting for your story and your little prayer. Younger children came to play snooker in the old garage in the back garden, or other games in the small conservatory playroom, and we were able to start a boys' club and a girls' craft class, both of which finally outgrew the premises and are now held at the church on different evenings with very efficient younger leadership. A group of children who have become Christians 
mostly at the summer camp or holiday clubs, still meet here for Bible study each week, led now by our church youth worker. Individual children and a few older folk came for Bible study on their own, and one boy who came regularly each week for some years was a special joy. He came alone for some time and then sometime, sometimes brought two or three friends along too. Invited to Sunday school when he was eight years old, he replied, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm not coming to Sunday school. A day or two later, he reappeared at the door with a large children's Bible and said, I've had a good idea. You shall teach me alone each Sunday morning when you come back from church. He was unusually bright and interested and wanted to go right through the Bible. The Ten Commandments especially interested him, and one winter evening he rushed in exclaiming, Just had an error escape, slipped on the ice and bumped my head, almost took the name of God in vain, but I just managed to turn it into gosh. Our sisters-in-law and nephews and nieces and greats, now fifty-three in number with two more on the way, contribute much to our happiness and frequently call on us. Barnum Six as doctors and teachers have followed in their father's footsteps and we are sca- and are scattered all over the world. Their letters in successive years from China, Central Asia, Abada, Morocco, Sweden, Canada keep us in touch, and on their visits home they bring their mostly large families to stay, and the children sleep on mattresses on the floor. A special delight every few years is seeing Dan, Farnham's third son, and his wife Sue, now with their four little girls and a baby boy just added. After 11 years in China, they have recently moved to Alma Alta in Kazakhstan, working with Operation Mobilization. Dan is leader of their team in the Central Asia. Our only remaining brother, Oliver, who has three very successful sons, lived in a beautiful converted barn not far away, where we enjoy visiting. He retired after years as chief scientist with the Civil Aviation Authority and now, with his wife Elaine, is fully involved in all aspects of village life and in organizing of various musical activities. Another big part of life has been the summer camps in the USA. Farnham's youngest son, still a medical student, was being married in Canada in 1985. We longed to go to the wedding but felt the expense was not really justified. Just then a letter came from Hazel's great friend from her Lebanon days, Faith Willard, who runs a seven-week summer camp, Good News, each each year for some 180 children and teenagers from all over the states and from, from overseas. Her brother, Peter Willard, has similar camps in Maine. Faith wrote that if we would come and take the Bible studies for the counselors and other workers in the preparation weeks at the two weeks and stay on for some other talks and just be there, they would pay for our return airfares. The times we were needed at camps fitted in exactly with the date of the wedding, and we accepted with great cheerfulness. The two campsites consist of some main buildings and a number of log cabins set in the woods, one beside a lake and the other by a wide river, both very beautiful indeed. The friendships we made there were something quite special, as was the opportunity of seeing or of hearing of numbers of young people coming to Christ and committing their lives to Him. There's a lovely mixture in both camps of older, very responsible workers, some of whom became Christians at camp themselves when Faith's father was in charge, and he would come back year after year, and a number of enthusiastic, keen uh, Christian university students who act as counselors, each responsible for six to seven campers. The kitchen, too, is always especially nice place to work with a very international team of men and women, professional people, housewives and students, 
I have returned for five summers and Hazel for seven. We have learned to love these Americans dearly. The age group seemed less felt than in England, and the counselors especially accepted us more as one of themselves and discussed many matters with refreshing frankness. Our singleness fascinated them, and they have a way of accosting us suddenly with such questions as, Say, ma'am, how come you never married? Or, say, ma'am, how did you figure out being single? That really makes me think. In both camps, there's a great emphasis on helping those in need, and car washes on Saturdays are a special way of helping to raise funds for projects in Bangladesh. At the end of our time at camp in 1985, David and Donna's beautiful wedding took place at the Prairie Bible Institute, where Donna's father worked. Then came the thrill of nearly a week in the Canadian Rockies with David's in-laws, who welcomed Janet, Martin, and Hazel and me as if we were really their own family, and we have loved their return visits to us. The wedding of Oliver, Farnham's second son, in Sweden was equally lovely occasion, as were other weddings in England too numerous to mention. The work of global care, described in the previous chapter, has occupied a lot of my time and thought. For every child rescued, fed, taught, and loved, we thank God. We count it the greatest privilege to be involved and long to share the needs and opportunities with others. Perhaps the most significant thing about those last years has been the gradual but growing realization that the apparently almost fruitless years of toiling and praying in Muslim lands are beginning to yield a harvest. The news reaches us of new hunger there for God's word and a new burden for prayer in the hearts of God's people. We cannot publish what we hear. We can only rejoice over these small green shoots. I spent some time reading the books and diaries of Lillis Trotter, veteran pioneer missionary in North Africa, and eager that they should be remembered. I wrote her biography, Until the Day Breaks, published by STL. Surely much of what happened today is due to the love and prayers and patience of those like Lilius Trotter, who trusted God to bring a harvest, even though there were so few results apparent. I have seen the beginning of that harvest on my visits back to Morocco, usually for a month or so each year. I see many old friends and some are interested in doing the Bible correspondence courses, as well as my nephew Paul, who for years has worked there, a surgeon like his father. He, too, has five sons and one daughter. Every night, the message of of the gospel is being broadcast across the country. Thousands are listening. Many are writing in for Bible correspondence courses. And here and there, someone listens and knows. This is the truth. This is the word of God. Sometimes he or she listens alone, and sometimes to the lonely, help is sent in strange ways. I remember a day a few years ago when on a visit to Morocco, I was staying alone in a small, fanatically Muslim city, and I went out on the balcony early. The sun had risen behind the mountain, bathing the red-tiled roofs of the houses in light and color. I prayed that on that very morning I would find one person at least who wanted to hear about Jesus and his gospel, and then I set out to climb to the top of the town. I did not know where or why I was going, but I came to a little public garden on the hillside, a place where tourists like to sit. But the tourist season was over, and the place was deserted, except for a man in a uniform guarding the entrance. I liked to avoid the policeman on my solitary walk, so I turned down the path to the right, but he had seen me and called to me. I went back, wondering if I was to be questioned, but he was merely bored and wanted a tourist to talk to, and he was delighted to find out that I spoke Arabic 
and we spent some time chatting pleasantly. When I rose to go, it was nearly time for another guard to relieve him. It was then that God seemed to speak very clearly in my heart. Give that man a gospel. I reacted immediately. Lord, if I give him one, he may report me at the police station, and they may send me out of the town. I still have visits to make. But the voice was relentless. Give him a gospel. So I drew out a gospel of John, and holding it firmly between my finger and thumb, I said, Have you ever seen one like this? He gazed at it in silence for a moment, and then gave a great shout. Ten, thirteen Marcells, he exalted, and almost tried to seize it from my hand. It was the box number of the radio school of the Bible. When I told him I had actually been there, he looked at me as if I had been, been from another world. Excitedly, he poured out his story. He had been listening to the gospel broadcast on the radio for about two years, and like many others nowadays, he had simply known that this was the truth, and he must follow it. He had written once to Marcel's, and for the last two years, he slowly and laboriously, he had been working through the lessons on Luke. He had never seen a gospel of John, nor met another Christian. He insisted I go home to lunch with him, and I followed him at a discreet distance, and was royally welcomed by his wife and his brother-in-law, who was up from the desert in the south. He had never seen a gospel and insisted that I give him a supply to take home with him, and these I fetched for him from the hotel later in the afternoon. But first we had a long talk altogether, and I was able afterwards to put my friend, the guard, in touch with an older Moroccan Christian in another town who promised to visit him one day. A younger man whom I always look forward to seeing when I visit my old haunts is the one who lived for two years in my home as a boy. He has no fixed address, so we can never correspond. But somehow he always seems to know when I arrive, and within a day or so will turn up, rather disruptable, but very welcoming and affectionate, usually at breakfast time. It was in connection with him as a child that I felt, more than any other time, that a real miracle happened. He came to me at, at nine years old after living for some time on the streets. His father had married again, and the stepmother had no place for him. At nine years old he was on his own, living by his wits, a clever and very attractive little thief eager to be loved and accepted by someone, who at that point happened to be me. He was certainly not easy. I got him with difficulty into one school after another, but he was never tolerated for more than a few days, or else he ran off of his own accord. I often wondered how we could put up with him ourselves any longer, but how glad I am that we did. On one occasion, a guest came over from Gibraltar to spend the day with us in Tangier. She had her handbag beside her, but somehow, when she came to leave, a twenty-pound note was missing. My heart sank as I realized at once that my small friend, who by that time was nowhere to be found, must have taken it. There was nothing for it but to replace the money, which at that point was not at all easy. When he finally reappeared, I insisted he tell me what he had done with the money, and he admitted to me he had taken it to a money changer. Knowing nothing of its value, he had received in Moroccan money the equivalents of two English pounds. I went with him to the money changer, who not unnaturally professed to know nothing whatever of the deal. There seems nothing to be done, at least for that moment. But two days later, as I was driving through the town, a man on a motorbike swerved in front of me and called out, Follow me. For some reason, I felt compelled to do so, and I found myself outside an empty hut along the beach. The man whom I'd never seen before beckoned me in and, without a word, handed me the equivalents of 18 pounds in Moroccan money. And then in a flash he disappeared. An angel on a motorbike. And now, as life draws on towards evening, and one looks back over the years, 
What conclusions or assessment can one draw? At first, standing alone, it's easy to see nothing but the failures, the mistakes, the might-have-beens, and to ask if anything has been achieved. But then Christ comes and stands beside us and says, Look with me. He reminds us of that amazing, unique verse in the book of Joel. I will restore the years that the locust has eaten. And we realize that he can do something that no earthly farmer can do. The earthly farmer can look at his blighted crop one year and realize the loss and determine to do better the next year. But Christ says, I will restore the years that the locust has eaten. I will bring glory, glorious harvest out of this very blighted crop. The blessed harvest of self-confidence turned to the trust of a broken and contrite heart and a deeper, more thankful love. For to whom much is forgiven, the same loves much. I have often wondered why Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith fell not. Why didn't he say, I prayed for you that you would not deny me? And then the tragedy would have been averted. I think the reason was that the Pentecost was very near when the Spirit of Jesus would seek access into Peter's heart, and before he could receive that Spirit, his own boastful pride and self-confidence needed to be shattered. He needed to learn his own weakness. He needed to weep bitterly and to not despair. At the moment when his faith might fail him, his Master was there, praying for him. And when we look away from ourselves to those hands that have held us, lifted us, guided us over the years, we see nothing but a track of undeserved mercy and unfailing, forgiving love. I think David, shepherd and king, illustrates this most clearly. His life that began so brightly was spoiled by a period of sin, of murder, adultery, and lying. Could any harvest be gathered from such a blighted crop? Certainly he had to pay for his sin in the years ahead, but he said, Into your hands I commit my spirit, and nothing placed completely into those wounded hands can turn out ultimately evil. Now this time has put the whole story into perspective. What is left at the permanent, indelible memory of those dark years? Just 51st Psalm, the prayer by which millions of sinners have turned back to the Savior. In his hands, bathed by those wounds, the evil was transmuted to his glory, and that is so often his way. When he purposes to build, he seeks for a ruin. When he plans to plant a garden, he starts with the desert. This is the last chapter of the book, although I am going to, in another section, as the second part, I'm going to read a poem she wrote called Alchemist, and then we'll have a third part, which will be the epilogue. I love you, I'm praying for you, and we'll see you later. Bye-bye.